Welcome to the podcast from the journal Addiction. My name's Susie Gage, the social media editor for the journal. In this episode, you can listen to the full interviews with authors who have published work in the December 2018 issue of the journal. Here's the conversation I had with Dr Jade Boyd about her paper, Gendered Violence and Overdose Prevention Sites, a rapid ethnographic study during an overdose epidemic in Vancouver, Canada. I'm Jade Boyd. I'm a research scientist, mostly doing qualitative and ethnographic work with the BC Centre on Substance Use. And I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Fantastic. And you've got a paper in the December issue of the journal Addiction. Could you just tell me a little bit about about the work? As I'm sure most people are aware, North America is experiencing um, an overdose epidemic that uh, has increasingly been driven by a toxic drug supply, essentially fentanyl-adulterated drugs. And Canada, we've been hit quite hard in British Columbia. Vancouver, we're one of the epicenters of the overdose crisis. And so in response to um, mounting unintentional overdose deaths, there was a range of low threshold model supervised consumption sites that were scaled up in British Columbia, including Vancouver. So what we did essentially is wanted to investigate access and how people were experiencing overdose prevention sites under the constraints of drug prohibition to ensure that they were um, equity in terms of access, um, that people were finding them accessible and to see if they met people's needs. So these overdose prevention sites, what, what sort of thing do they look like? Whereabouts are they and can can anyone access them or sort of yeah, what do they look like? I guess. Yeah, those are good questions. Um, so Vancouver is a um, home of Insight, one of the first supervised consumption, the first supervised consumption site in North America that opened in 2003. And that's a federally sanctioned site. But we opened um, low barrier sites in British Columbia called overdose prevention sites um, initially at around the end of 2016 when this study started, actually. The ones in Vancouver were centered in a very small geographical area in the downtown east side, which is one of the epicenters of the overdose crisis in Canada. It's also one of the poorest urban neighborhoods in Canada, but also an amazing site um, with history of community-led activism. And so really, overdose prevention sites are a great example of a community-led response to a public health emergency. So I think that setting is important. Now, all of the overdose prevention sites um, that we did work at uh, are quite diverse and different, although located in a very close geographical area. And so one was set up, you know, activist run initially with a tent, Um, and then a trailer outside before they had any type of support. So really on-the-cuff type of space right off the alley. So it was very accessible for people to come in and use. Um, Other ones are integrated into existing services like housing settings. One was set up in a drug user union that already had a history of um, providing support for people who use drugs. Very different type of um, settings. And what we did is spent time in overdose prevention sites observing and 
and talking to people every day uh, about the space and also recruiting people directly from the site to see what their responses were and their experiences of overdose prevention sites. And one of the other things that you're particularly interested in is um, gendered and racialized violence as well. So we did in-depth interviews with 35 women who use drugs um, because some initial themes started to emerge from the data when we started looking at it, um, that women were experiencing overdose prevention sites differently than men. Um, For women, they offered um, really important options uh, that weren't allowed at the federally sanctioned site because overdose prevention sites are low barrier. Some of the rules were a bit different. So they allowed for, maybe not formally, but um, it happened regardless, for assisted injection and injecting partnerships, which is really significant for women in that they allow women more control over their drug-using practices. Um, So that was a a large component of um, women's appreciation of the space. They also acted as a safe space for women from gender-based and racialized violence and exposure to negative police encounters that they might otherwise experience on the street. So uh, what came from the interviews is... Um, Even in the midst of an overdose crisis, study participants were talking about safety and the risk of violence. They reported that because intoxication from fentanyl occurred quite quickly, um, much faster than they were used to from smaller amounts of opioids, this compromised or impacted their ability to limit their exposure to different forms of predatory violence, you know, in risk environments like on the street within their scene. So their descriptions of safety at overdose prevention sites often centered around not only the need to have support in case of overdose death, but to protect themselves from violence they're experiencing on the street. That's really interesting. And so would you say those are the key findings from your paper or were there other findings as well? Another important aspect of overdose prevention sites is that they are a non-medicalized peer-involved model, which is different from our federally sanctioned supervised consumption sites. And this particularly benefits marginalized women, uh, women of color and indigenous women who also continue to experience a lot of racialized and stigma-based barriers to health and harm reduction services. One of the key findings is that violence operates largely in women's lives and is an important factor when considering how to address overdose risk for women that is different from men. So although overdose prevention sites were significant in terms of increasing feelings of gendered and racialized safety, there were, some women did experience these sites as masculine spaces, which can serve as a barrier to access um, for women. In this space. So that means that some of the gendered and racialized violence that, that women experience regularly or on the street also extends into service settings, and that we need to be attentive to that, um, especially when we're dealing with something so important like overdose. We want to ensure that these services are, are equitable. And, you know, so a big finding is that we can really benefit from gender specific and cultural responsive peer-led services. It's so important that women who use drugs work in these settings because that was a key reason why women found them more um, safe and were able to access them.
I was about to ask you uh, what are the implications of the findings, but you you may have already answered that. Do you think there are other implications? You know, generally we tend to frame the overdose crisis in Canada as a men's health crisis, and sometimes in the United States as a you know white suburban health crisis, and it really obscures the way women differently experience um, this health crisis as well. Even though um, the number of overdose deaths aren't as high for women, um, it certainly is if you think about things. Things like race, Indigenous women are experiencing overdose deaths at rates equal to that of Indigenous men. And it's certainly important when we think of related harms in relation to overdose, like issues around violence. Um, That is very important for women. So that's one of the significant things. And then also that I guess the the structure of low barrier overdose prevention sites are an important example of how we might increase access for women as a model in, in other settings. And what, what are the sort of key take home messages that you want people to take from your paper? I guess that women are dealing with drug use in the context of extreme poverty, marginalization, gender inequality and a toxic drug Um, drug supply. And so for them, overdose prevention sites operate as a safe haven, not only from overdose deaths, but as a a haven from violence or exposure to police and um, the everyday violence that they experience outside of these settings. So ultimately, overdose responses could really benefit further from incorporating these kind of peer-led, gender-specific and culturally responsive um, services. That's one of the key takeaways. Are there any other points that I've missed that you particularly want to highlight about the paper? I do want to mention that no one has died at the overdose prevention sites. They're an excellent example of a peer-led initiative to address it, but that one of the biggest drivers of the overdose crisis is that, for the most part, People don't have legal access to safe, unadulterated drugs, and that's really a product of drug prohibition. So moving ahead, we need to examine how our drug laws and policies contribute to the overdose crisis in the context that many people are also dealing with extreme poverty, unstable housing, systemic racism, and criminalization, which all exacerbate overdose risk. So while, you know, we need to think about gender violence in relation to how we address the overdose crisis for women, we also need to think about these larger issues um, that impact, you know, how women experience overdose death as well as men. So overdose prevention sites are are a great example of one intervention um, under these constraints. And there we go. Thanks again to Jade for taking the time to speak to me. Don't forget you can also listen to the December 2018 podcast, which details some of the other highlights of this month's journal issue as well. Thanks for listening.